Good morning, Grace. Turn in your Bibles to Ezra chapter 7. Ezra 7, while you're turning there, a couple of things I read on Twitter this morning to kind of set our hearts in that place. Um, Religion says change, and then you can receive God's love. But the gospel says receive God's love, and then you will change. Christianity is about not being good, but being forgiven because we aren't good. Christianity is not about being good. It's about being forgiven because you and I are not good. That should help prepare our hearts as we look at God's word today where we will see that in Ezra 7. So Ezra chapter 7, let's pray one more time before we begin. Father, thank you that relationship with you is not about being good because we can't be good. Only your son Jesus was perfect. Help us to realize that being good doesn't earn us your love. It's your love that transforms us and changes us, God. Direct our hearts to your word now by the power of the Holy Spirit. May we see Jesus and may he be glorified in his name. Amen. Ezra chapter 7, this is one of the most gospel-centered chapters in all of the Bible. Now, that may surprise you. You might be surprised to learn that Ezra 7 is one of the most gospel-centered chapters in the Bible, but I hope to show you today that this chapter just oozes with grace. It oozes with God's one-way love. You can't read Ezra chapter 7 without getting grace all over your face. If you read Ezra 7, you'll get grace all over you. Your hands will get sticky with grace. Ezra 7 is all about the grace of God. Ezra 7 is all about how God seeks us out when we are in the middle of the muck and mire of our sin. Ezra 7 is all about Jesus coming to us when we spiritually smell like a drunk homeless man who hasn't bathed in months. Ezra 7 is all about God's grace. Now, if you're familiar with Ezra chapter 7, that may surprise you. Ezra 7 is not about Ezra. It's not about the Persian king Artaxerxes. It's not about discipleship. It's not about Bible study. It's not about Israel. I used to think that discipleship was the focus. You might be surprised that Ezra 7 is not about Ezra. Oh, to be sure, we have made it about Ezra. We have preached and heard sermons that said we need to be like Ezra and we need to study God's word like Ezra. Now, it is true that we need to study God's word We do need to disciple people, but that's not what Ezra chapter 7 is about. Yes, there is an emphasis on the word of God in Ezra chapter 7 because eight times the law of Moses, the law of God, the law of the Lord is mentioned. So there's this theme of scripture and eight times the house of the Lord, the temple where Israel worshiped is mentioned. So eight times God's word is mentioned, eight times the temple, corporate worship is mentioned. Those are underlying themes But that's not what Ezra is about. Ezra is described in chapter 7 as a godly man who valued God's word. But I don't think this is the primary emphasis of this chapter. 
If we pull back the camera, if you will, and we take in Ezra chapter 9 and Ezra chapter 10, we will see that God's grace, his gracious hand on his people, that is the theme of this chapter. In fact, Ezra's name tips us off to this. Ezra is the Aramaic form of the Hebrew name Azariah, which means Yahweh helps. And that's what this chapter is all about. Yahweh, the sovereign Lord, that his hand graciously helps his wayward people. Ezra 7 is all about God's grace that seeks out dirty, rotten, filthy, stinking sinners like you and like me. Ezra 7 is God's preemptive strike of grace on his people. Ezra 7 is about God's one-way love that comes knocking on our door when we don't want him to knock on our door. Ezra 7 is about God's grace. Paul Zoll describes God's grace this way. What is grace? Grace is love that seeks you out when you have nothing to give in return. Grace is love coming at you that has nothing to do with you. Grace is being loved when you are unlovable. It is being loved when you are the opposite of lovable. Grace is a love that has nothing to do with you the beloved. It has everything and only to do with the lover. Grace is irrational in the sense that it has nothing to do with weights and measures. It has nothing to do with my intrinsic qualities or my so-called gifts, whatever they may be. It reflects a decision on the part of the giver, the one who loves, in relation to the receiver, the one who is love, that negates any qualifications the receiver may personally hold. Grace is one-way love. One-way love lifts up. One-way love cures. One-way love transforms. It is the change agent of life. Grace has nothing to do with us, how good we are, how much we read the Bible, how much we pray, what we do for him. Grace has nothing to do with us. It has everything to do with him. Ezra 7 is all about God's love that seeks out his people when they have nothing to give in return. There's no weights and measures here about how good I am and so therefore you love me. Grace has nothing to do with us and what we give in return to him. Ezra 7 is all about God's love that comes to you and it has nothing to do with you. Ezra 7 is all about being loved when you are unlovable. Ezra 7 is all about God's one-way love, his one-way love that lifts up and cures and transforms. And because God's love comes to sinners like us, it makes sense then that our big idea today is this. You can trace grace all over the place. You can trace God's grace all over every area of your life. If you investigate your life, you will find and you will discover God's grace all over the place. If you investigate your life, you will find the grace of God everywhere. You will find the DNA of his one-way love all over your life. You can trace grace, the DNA of God's one-way love, 
all over the place. And that's exactly what we will see in Ezra 7. When you look at the nation of Israel in Ezra 7 into 8, 9, and 10, you will see God's grace everywhere. But before we dive into the text, let's get our bearings. We ended Ezra 6 last week with the restoration of corporate worship. The temple building was completed. It, it set uh, desolate and no one was working for 15 to 17 years as we saw in Ezra 4, because the people of God feared their adversaries. So they stopped building the temple of God. Then God graciously sent the prophets Haggai and Zechariah that we looked at last week to preach and to prophesy, to encourage Israel to begin building again. And at long last, the temple was finally finished and Israel worshipped with joy. We saw that last week in Ezra 6. But as we begin Ezra 7, it is now 458 B.C., We have to realize that some 60 years have gone by between the end of Ezra 6 and the beginning of Ezra 7. And in that time, in that 60 years, something has happened. If you know Israel's history, and if you know your own history, and if you know your own heart, you won't be surprised that some Israelites have experienced heart drift. Their hearts have drifted, and they are dangerously close to being sent into exile once again. We'll see this in a few weeks in Ezra Ezra chapters 9 and 10, but the whole reason that God sends the man Ezra to Jerusalem is because the nation has intermarried with the pagan nations that surround Israel. They have turned away from God's word, which explicitly told Israel, do not marry foreign people. They will turn your hearts from me. And Israel has turned away from God's word. They're disobeying God's word. They're marrying non-Israelites, and they are dangerously close to packing their bags And being sent off into exile once again. So what does God do? In his grace. As evidence of his one way love. He sends a godly priest named Ezra. A man skilled in the word of God. With a one way ticket to Jerusalem. To call Israel back to Yahweh. Before they have to hit the road to exile once again. This is Yahweh's preemptive strike of grace to capture his people's hearts once again. Kind of like what he does with you and me all the time. Look at verses 1 through 6 and hear the words of the gracious God that we serve. Now after this, in the reign of Artaxerxes, king of Persia, Ezra, the son of Sariah, Son of Azariah, son of Hilkiah, son of Shalom, son of Zadok, son of Ahitub, son of Amariah, son of Azariah, son of Marioth, son of Zerahiah, son of Uzi, son of Buki, son of Abishua, son of Phinehas, son of Eleazar, son of Aaron, the chief priest. This Ezra went up from Babylonia. He was a scribe skilled in the law of Moses, that Yahweh, the Lord, the God of Israel, had given, and the king granted him all that he asked, for the hand of Yahweh his God was on him. 
Did you catch the trail of grace there as we read all of those hard-to-pronounce names? Ezra can trace his genealogy all the way back to Aaron, the great high priest. This is evidence of God's grace. The priestly line was not corrupted. No one intermarried with foreigners. This is all due to God's grace. Yahweh has preserved the holy line of priests who were called to stand between the people of God, the sinful people of God, and Yahweh, the holy God of Israel. And God has preserved this line of priests. Ezra can trace God's grace all the way back to Aaron. And Yahweh's grace was all over Ezra's life too because Ezra was a scribe, the text says, skilled in the law of Moses, God's word. The Hebrew word here for skilled has the idea of being quick or speedy or fast. Not that Ezra could find a Bible verse quicker than you or I could. That's not what it means. The Hebrew word means that he was skilled. He studied the law of God. He knew his way around it. He knew God's word. He was a man of the book. But did you catch the grace of God when it described God's word? It says, this Ezra went up from Babylonia. He was a scribe skilled in the law of Moses that the Lord, the God of Israel, had given. Those two words, had given, may not seem like much, but they're meant to jump off of the page. Yahweh has revealed in his word who he is, how he works in this world, and how sinners can be made right with him. That's grace. You might want to underline or highlight or circle those two words had given because they are proof of God's one-way love that comes to unlovable sinners like you and me. Even if you're a person that doesn't like to write in his or her Bible, I encourage you to underline had given because those two words are pregnant with God's grace. He has revealed who he is and how dirty, rotten sinners like you and me can be made right with him. God's law exposes us as sinners And then the gospel comes to declare that we can be made right with God, not through our works, but through the works of Jesus. That's grace, grace. And it is this very grace that characterized Ezra's life. We see that in the fact that God moved the heart of King Artaxerxes, the pagan king of Persia. God moved Artaxerxes' heart to give Ezra what he asked for. That's what it says in verse 6. Now, we don't know the details. We don't have a copy of what Ezra asked King Artaxerxes for. But we see here in verse 6 that the king gave him all that he asked for. In a moment, we'll see Artaxerxes' response to Ezra. But before we read Artaxerxes' reply to Ezra, notice at the end of verse 6, why Ezra was so skilled in God's word and why Artaxerxes responded to Ezra so favorably. You see his grace in that phrase, for the hand of the Lord his God was on him. This phrase appears eight times 
in the books of Ezra and Nehemiah. In the Hebrew Bible, Ezra and Nehemiah are one book. And this phrase, the hand of the Lord, appears eight times in the books of Ezra and Nehemiah. It's as if the author of Ezra and Nehemiah wants to drive home a point to you and me as we read his book. And his point is this, you can trace grace all over the place. Israel came back out of exile to Jerusalem to be the city of God precisely because the Lord's hand was on them. Ezra was skilled in God's word because the Lord's hand was on him. Ezra gained favor with a pagan king, King Artaxerxes, king of Persia, precisely because the Lord's hand was on him. And Ezra was being sent with a one-way ticket to Jerusalem to recalibrate Israel precisely because the Lord's hand was on him. The hand of Yahweh was on Ezra's life. Every success, every victory, everything about Ezra's life, just like mine and just like yours, was all due to the grace of God, all due to the hand of the Lord. As John Newton says so well in Amazing Grace, Through many dangers, toils, and snares, I have already come. Tis grace has brought me safe thus far, and grace will lead me home. And grace led Ezra on a four-month, 900-mile journey from Persia to Jerusalem and brought him safely home to the city of Jerusalem. Look at verses 7 through 10. We get a snapshot of his journey. Next week in chapter 8, we'll see more of that. But here we get a snapshot. Look at verses 7 through 10. And there went up also to Jerusalem in the seventh year of Artaxerxes the king, some of the people of Israel and some of the priests and Levites, the singers and gatekeepers and the temple servants. And Ezra came to Jerusalem in the fifth month, which was in the seventh year of the king. For on the first day of the first month, he began to go up from Babylonia. And on the first day of the fifth month, he came to Jerusalem. For the good hand of his God was on him. For Ezra had set his heart to study the law of the Lord and to do it and to teach his statutes and rules in Israel. Verses 7 through 10 give us a a sneak peek an overview of what we will see next week in chapter 8. Here we just get a condensed version of Ezra's journey. There are no details on Ezra's road trip. He had a one-way ticket to Jerusalem, but we don't know if he stopped at rest stations along the way. We don't know if he parked his RV in a Walmart parking lot. We don't know if he stopped at a KOA campground. We get no details. All we know is that he left with a group of people, and he made it safely to Jerusalem. But what we do know is why he made that four-month, 900-mile journey safely. Why? Well, you guessed it, because the text has told us again, for the good hand of his God was on him. I told you, Grace, you can trace grace All over the place. That 900 mile journey from Persia to Jerusalem was littered with God's grace. You could trace God's grace over the whole route. And the reason that Yahweh's hand 
was on Ezra's life is because in his sovereign goodness, Yahweh had chosen Ezra to be the instrument to call his people back from their heart drift. We'll see it in Ezra chapter 9 and 10, but Israel has started on a slippery slope by intermarrying with the pagan nations around them. So God, in his grace, sends Ezra to call them back to the Lord. And Ezra, the man whose name means Yahweh helps, he's the perfect person to help Israel. Because how is he described here in verse 10? Verse 10 says, For Ezra had set his heart to study the law of the Lord and to do it and to teach his statutes and rules in Israel. This is what you're looking for in godly pastors and elders. Men who set out to know God's word. Men who live in light of what they have learned from God's word. Men who teach God's word to God's people. But notice that you can't merely manufacture leaders like this. It takes a heart desire on the part of that person. But it also involves work and perseverance. It involves sweat. Notice why Yahweh prospered Ezra. Notice why the Lord prospered Ezra. Verse 10 says, For Ezra had set his heart. The Hebrew preposition, the word key here means for or because. It shows us that we play a part in God's kingdom as it is extended into this world. Typically, in Hebrew, the subject will follow the verb. That's how it normally works in Hebrew. You get the verb, and then you get the subject. But here in verse 10, the emphasis is on Ezra because the subject, Ezra, precedes the verb. It switches around for emphasis here. God's word is stressing that Ezra played a part. He played a role in this. It's stressing that we play a part in seeing God work in this world. We're not passive. God prospered Ezra because Ezra purposed to study and to do and to teach. If we claim that Ezra played no part and had no role to play, then we have an incorrect and a sloppy view of grace. Yahweh's hand was working with Ezra. Yahweh was helping Ezra, whose name means Yahweh helps. So it's not as you have heard it said, God helps those who help themselves. No, God helps those who set themselves, set themselves to study, to do, and to teach the word of the Lord. And all of this help by Yahweh is just another reminder that you can trace grace all over the place. God's grace was working in the heart of Ezra. And as we are about to see God was working in the heart of King Artaxerxes. So look at verses 11 through 26. We get Artaxerxes' letter that he sends to Ezra, saying everything, basically saying everything you ask for from me, I'm going to give it to you. Look at verse 11. This is a copy of the letter that King Artaxerxes gave to Ezra the priest, the scribe. 
a man learned in matters of the commandments of the Lord and his statutes for Israel. Artaxerxes, king of kings. He has a complex. You know that, don't you? Artaxerxes, king of kings, to Ezra the priest, the scribe of the law of the God of heaven. Peace. And now I make a decree that anyone of the people of Israel or their priests or Levites in my kingdom who freely offers to go to Jerusalem may go with you. For you are sent by the king and his seven counselors to make inquiries about Judah and Jerusalem according to the law of your God, which is in your hand, and also to carry the silver and gold that the king and his counselors have freely offered to the God of Israel, whose dwelling is in Jerusalem, with all the silver and gold that you shall find in the whole province of Babylonia, and with the freewill offerings of the people and the priests, vowed willingly for the house of their God that is in Jerusalem." With this money, then, you shall with all diligence buy bulls, rams, and lambs, with their grain offerings and their drink offerings, and you shall offer them on the altar of the house of your God that is in Jerusalem. Whatever seems good to you and your brothers to do with the rest of the silver and gold, you may do according to the will of your God. The vessels that have been given you for the service of the house of your God, you shall deliver before the God of Jerusalem. And whatever else is required for the house of your God, which it falls to you to provide, you may provide it out of the king's treasury. And I, Artaxerxes the king, make a decree to all the treasurers in the province beyond the river. Whatever Ezra the priest, the scribe of the law of the God of heaven, requires of you, let it be done with all diligence, up to 100 talents of silver, 100 cores of wheat, 100 baths of wine, and 100 baths of oil, and salt without prescribing how much. Whatever is decreed by the God of heaven, let it be done in full for the house of the God in heaven, lest his wrath be against the realm of the king and his sons. We also notify you that it shall not be lawful to impose tribute, custom, or toll on any one of the priests, the Levites, the singers, the doorkeepers, the temple servants, or other servants of this house of God. And you, Ezra, According to the wisdom of your God that is in your hand, appoint magistrates and judges who may judge all the people in the province beyond the river, all such as know the laws of your God. And those who do not know them, you shall teach. Whoever will not obey the law of your God and the law of the king, let judgment be strictly executed on him, whether for death or for banishment or for confiscation of his goods or for imprisonment. Now, we don't have a copy of Ezra's request to Artaxerxes, but we do have a copy of the king's response. And what is the one thing that just oozes out of Artaxerxes' letter? It's grace. This letter is full of grace, full of the evidence of God's grace. The pagan king Artaxerxes says, here, go, take all the money, take all the silver, all the gold, anything you want. If they want it and they need it, give it to them. That's grace. This is the government saying, go and we'll pay for your worship. That's grace. This letter is proof to Ezra and Israel that they could find God's grace all over their lives. Yahweh was moving history and moving the hearts of pagan kings in order to help his people. This is just how our God works. He moves history For his people. And the proof that Yahweh graciously moves history for his people 
is found in Ezra's response to the king's letter. In verses 27 through 28, we see God's grace all over the place. We see God's grace all over this paragraph. We see God's grace evidenced by the fact that his people, who were always being threatened by the world, are still hanging around planet Earth after all these years. Look at verses 27 and 28. See Ezra's response to the letter that he received from Artaxerxes. He says, Blessed be the Lord, blessed be Yahweh, the God of our fathers, who put such a thing as this into the heart of the king to beautify the house of the Lord that is in Jerusalem and who extended to me his steadfast love before the king and his counselors and before all the king's mighty officers. I took courage for the hand of Yahweh my God was on me and I gathered leading men from Israel to go up with me. So Ezra gets King Artaxerxes' letter in the mail. He opens it up and reads what we just read in verses 11 through 26. And then Ezra busts out a praise song here. Notice what Ezra sings here. He connects his current situation with all of the people of God that have gone before him. He says, blessed be the Lord, blessed be Yahweh, the God of our fathers. Ezra's song lyrics are pointing out the fact that Yahweh has been faithful to his people all of these years. All the way back to Abraham, all the way back to Isaac, all the way back to Jacob, all the way back to Israel's fathers in the faith. The Lord has been faithfully dispensing his grace to his people. And if we could read all of Ezra's lyrics to this song that he was singing, I'm willing to bet that the chorus to his song went something like this. You can trace grace all over the place. You know, Paul says, I'm a madman. I make myself a fool for Christ in 2 Corinthians. That's just what I did just then. If it makes you remember it, I'll gladly make a fool of myself. You can trace God's grace all over the place in your life. Everywhere you look, lift up a rock, his grace is there. Ezra and Israel could trace the grace of God all the way back to Father Abraham. And once they got to Abraham and turned back around and made their way back to Ezra's day, they could trace God's way, God's grace, all the way to the heart of King Artaxerxes. And God in his grace put it into the king's heart, a pagan king's heart, to beautify the temple of the Lord in Jerusalem. Think about it. This is the government coming and saying this. We want to help you beautify your church. Here's a stack of money. Go buy some paint, do some remodeling, and make it pretty. Can you imagine if our government came and said that to us? What could we say but that it was the grace of God? That's exactly what's happening right here. Grace is the currency of Jesus. He dispenses grace to sinful, messy people who are unlovable. God's grace is his one-way love that comes to you when you have nothing to give in return. And you have nothing, even your self-righteousness, he doesn't want it. He comes when you have nothing to give. And that's exactly what Ezra praises God for 
in verse 28 because he says, And who extended to me his steadfast love. God's one-way love is his steadfast love. Here, it's the Hebrew word hesed, which we've looked at before. Hesed means loyalty, devotion, faithfulness, commitment, kindness, goodness. It's this gigantic Hebrew word that we try to put into a few English words, and it's almost impossible. But it typically gets translated in English Bibles as steadfast love. Hesed as G.R. Clark says, is not merely an attitude or emotion. It is an emotion that leads to an activity beneficial to the recipient. A beneficent action performed in the context of a deep and enduring commitment between two persons or parties by one who is able to render assistance to the needy party who in the circumstances is unable to help him or herself. So hesed, or as I would define it, loyal covenant love, is not just an attitude or an emotion. It's not this attitude or this emotion or the warm fuzzies of God. It's an emotion with legs on it because it leads to action. It's an active love or devotion. It is not static. Hesed involves two committed parties where one party is able to help the other party who is not able to help him or herself. And Ezra knows that he's committed to Yahweh and Yahweh is committed to him, but Ezra knows that his commitment to Yahweh stinks and so does yours. Think about your past week. Your commitment to the Lord stinks because you chose sin over him a thousand times. But God comes to us to help us because we can't help ourselves out of our sin. And that's why Ezra praises Yahweh because Ezra, like every Israelite, like every non-Israelite, like every human being, like every one of us gathered here today, we cannot help ourselves. We think we can, but we can't. We need God to step down, to reach down to us and to love us when we are unlovable. We need God's one-way love to come down on a one-way street right down to us where we are. And God did that for Ezra because verse 27 says, The hand of Yahweh my God was upon me. God's hand was on Ezra to send him to recalibrate his people in Jerusalem with God's word because God's people were slipping and they had already begun intermarrying with the nations. And God in his grace says, I'm going to send Ezra to preach my word to you to capture your hearts again. God was working in the heart of Ezra and gave him a love of the word of God. God was working in the heart of Artaxerxes, the king of Persia, a pagan king, so that he would support Ezra and the people of God. And God sent Ezra, the man whose name means Yahweh helps. God sent Ezra to help rescue Israel's wayward hearts. God, in his grace, sends this awesome Bible lover to a people who hate and disregard God's word. Does that remind you of someone? God sends a Bible lover, one who delights to do the will of God to rescue and help sinners who don't give a rip about God and his word. Does that remind you of someone that God sends a Bible lover, one who delights to do the will of God 
to rescue and help sinners who don't give a rip about God and his word. Does that remind you of someone, capital S, someone? In case you didn't drink enough coffee this morning, it should remind you of Jesus. God's steadfast love, his hesed, comes to us in Jesus Christ to rescue us and to recalibrate our wayward hearts. God's one-way love must come down to us because we are helpless. Read the Old Testament. Read the New Testament. Read it from cover to cover and you'll soon discover this. You can trace God's grace all over the place. All over the Bible we see God graciously condescending to help helpless sinners. And the New Testament version of Ezra chapter 7 where we have seen the good hand of the Lord helping sinners. The New Testament version of Ezra chapter 7 is Ephesians chapter 2 where the Apostle Paul says this. And you were dead in the trespasses and sins in which you once walked, following the course of this world, following the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that is now at work in the sons of disobedience, among whom we all once lived in the passions of our flesh, carrying out the desires of the body and the mind, and were by nature children of wrath like the rest of mankind. But... God. Two more words you ought to underline, highlight, and circle. But God being rich in mercy because of the great love with which he loved us even when we were dead in our trespasses. He made us alive together with Christ. By grace you have been saved. And he raised us up with him and seated us with him in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus so that, notice the purpose clause here, you want to circle those two words too because they're very important. They tell you why God saved you. Here it comes. Are you ready? Put on your seatbelts, buckle up because this is going to blow your mind. He did all this, raised you up, saved you to be with Jesus so that in the coming ages he might show the immeasurable riches of his grace in kindness toward us in Christ Jesus. For by grace you have been saved through faith. And this is not your own doing, it is the gift of God. Not a result of works so that no one may boast. You can trace grace all over the place when you read Ephesians 2. What does Paul say? We were spiritually dead, but God, who is rich in mercy, loaded with mercy, mercifully made us alive together with Jesus. And then two times, Paul says, by grace you have been saved. And then why did God save us? So that in the coming ages, he might show the immeasurable riches of his grace in kindness toward us in Christ Jesus. Ages, plural, 
ages, for ages and 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 ages. Do you want me to keep going? Ages and ages and ages and ages and ages into eternity. God will stay busy doing what he has been doing since Genesis 3. He will show us the immeasurable riches of his grace. That's what he's been doing since Genesis 3, dispensing grace to unlovable sinners. And that's what he's going to do for eternity, for ages plural. Wrap your mind around that. For all of eternity, God's one-way love will keep washing over us like waves of the ocean. For all eternity, God will keep showing us the immeasurable riches of his grace. Even in heaven, for all of eternity, you can trace grace all over the place. From beginning to end, it's grace. And from the beginning of this sermon to the end of this sermon, which is where we are now, from the beginning of this sermon to the end of this sermon, it's been grace. As Dr. Martin Lloyd-Jones said, it is grace at the beginning and grace at the end. So that when you and I come to lie upon our deathbeds, the one thing that should comfort and help and strengthen us there is the thing that helped us in the beginning. Not what we have been, not what we have done, but the grace of God in Jesus Christ our Lord. The Christian life starts with grace. It must continue with grace. It ends with grace. Grace, wondrous grace. By the grace of God, I am what I am. Yet not I, but the grace of God, which was with me. I challenge you this week to look over your life And I promise you, you can trace God's grace everywhere. Spend some time this week in thinking about the grace of God in your life. One, if you're a Christian, that he saved you from your sin. Think about your house and your car and your kids and your food and your job. And see his grace. See if you don't get rug burns because you fall to your knees immediately because you're so overwhelmed. See that you don't go through a whole box of Kleenex because you're crying tears of joy because God's grace to you in his son, Jesus Christ. You can trace grace all over your life. May God help us to be a church who is aware and thankful for God's grace to us. You might as well get used to his grace because this is what heaven's about. It's just God showing you his grace. It's immeasurable. You think you get to the end of it and the next day he's like, I got more. If you, if you struggle with grace, you're not gonna like heaven because God's gonna keep showing you more and more grace for ages. Ages. That's a long time. May God make us a church that really understands our first name. Let's pray. Father, thank you for your grace. We don't deserve it. That's what it means. It's unmerited favor. We can't earn it, God. Your grace doesn't come to us because of anything we've done for you. You're not impressed with us. You're only impressed with your son. Oh, God, may we understand that. May we be a church that looks to Jesus and not to our own self-righteousness. May we be a church that doesn't condemn other people, say they're wrong, they're wrong. May we look at our own hearts and say, I'm wrong. And may we look at your son, Father, because we could never, ever earn your love. We are unlovable, and yet you come to us in spite of who we are. Oh, God, may we stand in a moment 
and sing about your grace, which is enough. May we leave here full of your joy. And may we get a foretaste, even now as we sing, of what eternity is going to be like for ages and ages and ages and ages. For your glory, by the power of the Spirit, and for our joy, we ask this in Jesus' name. Amen.